Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, an eye-opening interview with investigative journalist Paul Facker and alleged ethical breaches he found committed by Dr. Fauci and then head of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins. Investigative journalist Paul Facker caught Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins, who is head of the National Institutes of Health, violating their own established ethics rules against ghostwriting or plagiarism when they apparently behind the scenes weighed in on or helped lead articles deflecting the public from the likelihood of the Chinese lab origins for COVID, but didn't disclose their roles in those articles. You'll hear in a moment how Paul Thacker knows that that's a violation of established ethics rules and how he knows they did exactly what they did. To this day, by the way, nobody has been held accountable for what I see as one of the biggest problems among many during COVID, that the public health officials involved in the controversial research that may have led to the leak from the Wuhan lab engaged in a campaign to steer the narrative away from that possibility without disclosing their own roles in funding the research, backing the research, with our tax money, by the way. If this happened in private industry with investor money involved and investor confidence at stake, you can bet there would likely be swift action against the alleged offenders. But as we have come to know, this doesn't typically happen in government. In any event, here's Thacker explaining what he found. So I'm a, an investigative reporter who, um, and I work in the area of uh, involving corruption in science and medicine. And I also spent several years Senate doing the same thing, investigating corruption in science and medicine. And you've found a lot of fascinating things. People should follow you on Twitter and they should look at your Substack, the Disinformation Chronicles. But we're here to talk about some interesting ethical questions you can raise about the former head of NIH, Francis Collins, and Dr. Fauci, who's on his way out the door at National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. First, can you right. give us sort of the overview and we'll get into the details? Sure. So the first thing people need to understand is, is we're now in like, what is it, year three of this COVID pandemic. And, and from the very beginning, when this first started, you know, at least in the United States in early um, 2020, there's there's always been like two major questions. One question is how did this pandemic start? And the reason why, you know, why you want to understand why this pandemic started is because you want to know how to prevent the next one. Just the same as, you know, when it, when a fire breaks out, you know, investigators will come in and see how did the fire start so you can stop, potentially stop um, other fires from happening in other houses or other buildings, right? So that's important to understand. And then the second thing to understand is like, well, how do we deal with the pandemic while it's ongoing? And that has had, and, and, and both of those issues, like how do we, how did the pandemic start and how do we deal with the pandemic? Both of those issues have had serious concerns about transparency from the government and the type of messages that, that, we, that we've been given um, as far as um, uh, what the government is doing and, and, and whether these um, were being given truthful information or not. Now, on the issue involving the um, how the pandemic started, wh what we know is, is that this virus came out of China. And there's from there, there's been two questions. Did this happen naturally? 
because in other words, there was um, a, what's called a natural spillover where this virus jumped from an animal into humans as has happened so often and so many times in the past where pandemics, a virus crosses over from animals to humans or did it happen because um, there was virus research going on and this thing got out of a lab? And from the very beginning of the pandemic, as we're now learning, um, this narrative that it, it could not have come from a lab has been shaped by people inside um, the federal government, specifically by Anthony Fauci, um, who runs an institute called the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It's an institute housed within the National Institutes of Health. Now, the thing you have to understand is that while this is called the National Institute of, of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, it's actually a biodefense research institute housed within the United States, uh, housed within the National Institute of Health. That's not spoken about much today, but if you go back and look after the um, anthrax attacks and after 9-11, the federal government poured billions of dollars into biodefense. And much of that money was redirected towards Anthony Fauci's institute. So what he really runs is a biodefense institute, but that's not what it's ever called. And when you say biodefense now, institute, how much did this money change? Sorry, when you say yeah. biodefense institute, you would mean government um, desire or efforts to develop things in case we were to be attacked with a bioweapon like a germ or a virus or some kind of, you know, like anthrax attack. Correct. Now, what what they always say is is that this bi is that it's biodefense. Now, the thing is, of course, is that this is always it's also operates under this this rubric called dual use, right? I mean, look, um, you can you can call an M sixteen um, a defense weapon, or you can call it an assault weapon, right? So some of this stuff is about um, semantics, right? And kind of like what the terms are that that, that, that you, you you want to use. But well, we we're do technically not permitted in this country to create, um, a, you know, something to attack with only to defend with. So I think that's right. That's why we term everything as defense. But but then that, 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 that raises a, a very obvious question, right? How do you create a weapon? For instance, let's just create, a, 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 um, how do you create a weapon to defend yourself, right? against a Tyrannosaurus Rex unless you first have a Tyrannosaurus Rex to test it on, right? There I mean, lies how, the can you, how can you have a, defense, a defensive weapon against something that doesn't exist? And so that creates this whole line of research in which we're taking these viruses and ginning them up and making them more dangerous so that we can then create defensive uh, uh, countermeasures to them. But I, I want to go back to like this history because most people don't know this. What Anthony Fauci now controls at the at the um, what's called the Allergy and Infectious Disease Institute, it's a biodefense research institute, and we know this because there was a letter sent to the NIH signed by dozens of scientists back in 2006 complaining about how the institute had totally changed its focus and its research agenda. And this was signed by people who had done traditional allergy and infectious diseases um, research. We also know that because Anthony Fauci was very proud of his biodefense research. If you go back and look at congressional hearings and letters that he signed, you know, almost 20 years ago. Today, we don't hear about that, though. And I think that if if, if Anthony Fauci had been brought on television or in white briefings 
and had been identified as head of biodefense research and not as head of an institute of allergy and infectious diseases, I think this would have had a very different um, perception, would create a different perception by the American public. Very good point. So bring us up to that background and how it applies to some documents. Actually, you recently wrote about these documents that are some years old, but certainly have implications to something that they, meaning Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, um, have done related to COVID. Can you sort of, I don't know, give a couple sentence summary of that, and then we can go into further detail. Sure. So, I mean, initially what the issue was, you know, when the pandemic started, we're like, well, where did this virus come from? Like, how did it, you know, how did it, how did it start? And so, you know, the, the only two ways of, you know, unless Martians brought it on the earth or it was created by God, we know there's two possibilities. And, and, and that is, is that it, 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 it happened naturally, you know, that it, some human was interacting with this animal and the virus crossed over, or it was created in a lab. Now, what we know now, although we, 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 we didn't realize at the time, Throughout those first two years when we were discussing all this, there was a very concerted effort by virologists to do this type of dangerous research, studying these, collecting these viruses and studying them in, these, them in labs to denigrate any potential discussion of lab research causing the pandemic, to call that a conspiracy theory, to say that it had no merit, that it was not scientific, um, that you were a lunatic, what have you. We didn't know this was going on behind the scenes, but we're seeing it now because emails have been coming out. And we now know that the government was behind, or these government public health officials were behind this effort to label it as a conspiracy theory, perhaps with people in private industry that they work with. But I think one of my big complaints has always been that Dr. Fauci at the same time, he was disparaging the most obvious and logical theory that this came from the lab where they were doing these experiments in China that we were helping to fund. Um, while he was disparaging that, he did not disclose to the American public um, that he was involved in this research and he was funding and had approved this research. So I think that's a classic conflict of interest where it looks like, in retrospect, he's covering his tracks or he's covering himself somehow by misdirecting people without admitting his, his own ties. Well, I think we know that now. We're beginning to realize that now. We didn't understand at the time. What happened initially was, you know, in the early years, so we got to go back into, you have to, so like this pandemic starts in like January, right? We have the first, I'm looking through the, the timeline now. We have a sequence for the virus that's released in January 11th, 2020. We then see a series of papers that come out that say it couldn't have possibly come from a lab. And if you say that, it's a conspiracy theory. The first one that came out, like there were two around the same time. One was in this journal called um, Emerging Microbes and Infections, written by a bunch of um, virology researchers um, and said, you know, there's no possibility based upon looking at this, this virus and, and the ge genetics of it, you know, but there's this conspiracy theory floating around. Well, well what we know now that, that came out, like I want to say earlier this year, so just in January this year, so this would have been January 2020. January um, 2022, two years after this paper was written, we know now that those virologists, when they were drafting that piece, they shared it with Ralph Barrick, who does virus 
gain of function research at the University of North Carolina. He does this exact kind of research. He edited their piece and then told them explicitly in an email, um, I don't want my name on this. They also shared the um, draft of the article with Shi Zheng Li, who is a researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where everyone said that this, you know, people were thinking this virus might have come out of the lab there. They shared the draft with her and then said that they had incorporated her comments. They then published this piece without disclosing that there had been this secret editing by Ralph Barrick and by Shi Zheng Li. So that's one example. The next thing that we know is there was a letter placed in the Lancet, a very prestigious, and by the way, that first article I'm talking about in emerging microbes and infections, it then became the most heavily cited, one of the most heavily cited articles published by the scientific publisher, Taylor and Francis. They were later thanked by Taylor and Francis for how many views it got. So that's one example. The next one was a letter placed in the Lancet that we found out later was being orchestrated behind the scenes by Peter Daszak. Peter Daszak runs a nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health and who funds Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This one also stated that it's a conspiracy theory to say that this could have come from a lab, did not disclose that, that um, Peter Daszak fund Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, did not disclose that many of the authors on the piece had ties to Equal Health Alliance. So what they were listed as, you know, professor at University of Maryland, not that, you know, vice president also at Equal Health Alliance or on the board of Equal Health Alliance. That paper was then later edited and amended by The Lancet. Okay, so those are the two examples. Now, the next one that we know is the one that where emails are just coming out that is a paper that was called Proximal Origins, where it explained that based upon our analysis of the virus and how it looks and specific um, 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 ways that this that, that this virus performs, you know, it could not have possibly um, come from a lab. Now, what we know now is that the people who wrote that paper. Um, initially, we're very concerned that it may have been engineered, that like when they looked at that, like, we think this thing was engineered. There was then a teleconference um, with Anthony Fauci um, and, and Francis Collins and a guy named Jeremy Farrar, who runs a thing called the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the largest funders of biomedicine on the planet. And after they had these teleconferences, um, they then came around to this totally different opinion and then published this piece in Nature Medicine that said, aha, this thing is natural, couldn't have come from a lab. Well, the latest emails show that not only did was there a teleconference, but the authors of that piece shared the draft, multiple drafts with Anthony Fauci, uh, uh, Francis Collins, and, um, and uh, Jeremy Farrar at the Wellcome Trust. And I'll read you to the emails that the lead authors sent to them. Um, Wait, this the was, was the Welcome Trust, Glaxo Welcome, the um, drug company? No, it well, it, it may have come from that. I think it may have like it's 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 a British foundation, so like I'm not totally aware of who they are. They have they have by the way, they, there has been a, there was an article in the BMJ looking at all their investments. They have tons of investments in pharmaceutical companies. The well the the Welcome Trust does. Okay, and they fund a lot of this biomedical research. They fund virologists. Okay. So, you know, it, it's not in their best interest to find out that, hey, we're funding this virology research, which, oh, oops, 
this caused the pandemic. <laughs> you know, that's, like, that's, that's, that's not a place you want to be in. Well, so, so multiple people directly involved in the controversial research at issue, the right. origins could point to them, are ghostwriting right. or helping edit without the right. ethical disclosure that they're doing this. Right, right. So, so now here's how we know, like, so like, okay, look, there's emails showing that they shared the draft with these guys, right? Um, you know, and, and I've been told like, you know, oh, well, sharing drafts is normal. Like, that's how you do things, you know, that, 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 that's, that's the scientific process. Like Christian Anderson, the lead author on that Nature Medicine paper, a leader said like, this is how science works. Like you get advice from people, but here's actually what he sent to, this is from emails that came out just like two weeks ago. Christian Anderson, the lead author on this study in Nature Medicine that was then heavily cited all over the world, right? He, he, he writes, dear Jeremy, Tony and Francis, Thank you again for your advice and leadership as, as we have been working through the SARS-CoV-2 origins paper. So he thanks them for their advice and leadership on this paper. Right. And then he tells them, he says, to keep you in the loop, I just wanted to share the accepted version with you as well as a draft press release. We're still waiting for proofs. So please let me know if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions about the paper or the press release. So after he already thanks them for their advice and their leadership on the paper that they're not mentioned on in any way, he then offers like, could you have like comments or suggestions or questions about the paper, right? So then you go and so this just came out like two weeks ago. So then I went and I pulled down the paper. There's no mention at all of anything about involving Farrar, Fauci and Collins, you know, in the paper at all. Even though they provided leadership on the paper, According to the lead author, I just I had this I had this lawyer try to get very clever with me, academic lawyer. He's like, well, Paul, I don't see that they did anything in the paper. Like there's just like they're looking at the draft and anything. And so I, I emailed him back and I said, when was the last time you published an academic paper thanking someone for their advice and leadership when they didn't offer any advice and leadership? Right. <laughs> you know. Well, so, and, and so the question is, you know, beyond this is obviously ethically inappropriate. But you right. found that even Collins and Fauci, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, have acknowledged explicitly in the past that this type of activity or ghostwriting or whatever it is would be unethical if not disclosed. Right. So what happened is you go back um, back to 2011. I had left um, Congress and I was working at this small nonprofit and contacted some uh, a plaintiff's law firm and they had... Um, gotten released through discovery, a bunch of documents showing that these um, drug companies had ghostwritten these studies for these professors. So they wrote it and then they kind of like just signed their name on it and published it. And it was helping for the marketing of, of these drugs sold by GlaxoSmithKline. So I wrote a report about it. It got picked up by the New York Times. It was then picked up in an editorial by Nature. Um, and I sent a letter to Collins um, at the time saying like, what are you going to do about this stuff? Like, this is a huge problem. And all these guys are funded by the National Institutes of Health. Like you need to do something. Now, what I didn't disclose until today is that, oh, uh, until I just wrote this piece, is that I also was back channeling to Collins because I had caught Collins in an act of ghostwriting. What had happened is I had been investigating someone at the NIH, one of the Institute directors, and in the process of investigating him and later forcing him out while I was a congressional investigator, 
I had heard that one of the things this guy had done, he had a whole bunch of ethical problems that were covered all over by the media, New York Times, Washington Post, all covered my investigation. I had heard that he had a, a woman at the NIH was running around the office, pissed off and yelling in the hallways because she had written this paper for David Schwartz, who ran the Institute, um, that was then passed off to Francis Collins. And when it was published, her name was nowhere on that paper. Now, this is a very junior woman, by the way, at the NIH. So this would have been a big deal for her career to have her name like on a major policy paper in one of the top journals, which is science, yeah. Yeah. along with the head of the NIH, who Francis Collins, and this other guy, David Schwartz, who was also like a huge name in, in, in environmental um, research. And I didn't do anything with that because I didn't know what to do. And also because even though I worked in Congress at the time, I knew that like, it's very difficult to protect whistleblowers. And so, and, and plus on, honestly, like, you know, I've been in research for quite some time and I know this is quite common for senior researchers to steal stuff from junior people and then publish it like without acknowledgement, especially when that senior guy is, you know, an older man and she's a younger woman. This, this, this is very, un, very well known that this happens quite often in science. And so I didn't do anything, but I later wrote a Senate report on ghostwriting. And at that time when it happened, I went and sat down with a congressional affairs guy for the NIH. And I said, look, ghostwriting is a serious problem. It's a danger to public health. And I want Francis Collins to do something about this. And I told him what I knew. Now, Francis Collins did not know, I don't think, I have no proof that he knew that this, you know, policy paper that he put his name on that was published in science had been ghostwritten by this, you know, junior employee at the NIH. But I told him that nonetheless, I knew this happened. And Francis' name, Francis Collins' name is on a ghostwritten paper. And if he doesn't do anything and address this issue, I will go public. And I will embarrass him publicly. And I can do this in the New York Times because I have friends at the New York Times. And so then when I later um, came out with these, these papers, I called the NIH and I called that guy up and I said, remember our coffee? You better talk to him. You better tell him to do something because if you don't, I'm going to put it in the New York Times. And so then he wrote a letter back to me. Francis Collins did address to me about how, you know, how ghostwriting could be dealt with. And in that letter... What he said was, he said that ghostwriting, um, I'm sorry, I'm looking for it right now. <laughs> he said that um, that that this that, that when you when something's ghostwritten, in other words, or it could be considered a type of plagiarism where you take someone's ideas or words and then you don't like acknowledge that, and that this would be handled by the Office of Research Integrity at the HHS. This is what he told me. And I, I'd totally forgotten about this letter because he sent me this letter, like, you know, I, we published it at, at, at the nonprofit I was at. And I totally forgot. And I went back and looked at it and I was like, huh, looks like what Francis Collins did with this paper that was published a couple of years ago is what he told me in a letter 10 years ago that this is a type of research misconduct that should be looked at by the Office of Research Integrity. And so that's why I don't, I feel comfortable talking about what I know you know, happen with this paper he published in science, because as far as I'm concerned, that deal that we cut a decade ago, that's done. That's done. You know, he acted like he was going to address this issue and then he turns back around and essentially does the very same thing that he told me 
he was trying to address 10 years ago. So that's why we're here today. I think that's fascinating and so smart that you made that connection with something today and something that happened so long ago. And you've published this old email in your Substack. Again, if people aren't familiar with Substack, I think they get a little bit intimidated by it, you know, if they don't know. How would they subscribe or find you? Do they have to pay? I think it lets you read an article before you decide, but you you let me know. So the way it works is, um, you know, some articles are paid, some are free. You can, anyone can sign up, you know, and then, um, and then like I'm publishing a piece next week. Um, for, for example, that, um, is I have a, an intelligence document that was, um, an analysis early on in the pandemic about what, what the intel agencies thought happened with the pandemic. And I have a copy of that. I was given a copy of that. I just got it last week and I'm publishing that. Well, that's going to be behind, behind a firewall. So like you can read so much and then there's a firewall. And if you want to, um, read further, you're going to have to pay to subscribe, but anyone, anyone can subscribe. Some articles are free. Some aren't depends upon who's what, you know, wh which particular newsletter, um, what their, you know, policies are, but this so is mine, what, I, have, I have some free, some are behind the paywall. What people understand, this is how some of the best independent journalists can do their work that are not going to be funded or used at the mainstream organizations that have been co-opted co by in many cases, propaganda and special interests and so on, they can do a substack. That's why there are subscriptions and firewalls or paywalls on some of these. So right. do support this journalism. Paul Thacker is incredible. The things he turns up, ordinary journalists, even investigative journalists, lack a full understanding of scientific and medical issues and how that world works. Paul Thacker knows. He's had articles published in medical journals. So he really is on the cutting edge of this. I just want to let everybody know they should watch for you and your good work. And this has been a fascinating loop that you closed on this ghostwriting with these high officials. We'll have to see if anything's done about it. I, I sense nothing will be, but the exposure of it is certainly valuable. So thank well, you. Go ahead. I, I want to tell you one more thing um, that was also very interesting to see how this whole thing was done. This, this whole thing really remind it also like, this incident with this paper that was in Nature Medicine, what it really reminds me of, it reminds me of the whole issue that happened with Judith Miller, where you had Bush administration officials, you know, running to Judith Miller, Judith Miller and the New York Times, they wanted, you know, it wasn't just Judith Miller, like people want to say, you know, you know Judith Miller did all this, but it wasn't just her, it was her editors also, they wanted front page scoops, and they were being fed front page scoops by, um, the Bush administration officials who wanted to push this narrative that there were weapons of mass destruction, you know, in Iraq. And we could know that like that really wasn't the case. So what happened here was after Francis Collins and Tony Fauci then helped to orchestrate this piece and plant it in nature medicine, they then amplify it themselves. So, you know, after it's published, then Francis Collins, a couple of weeks later, writes about it. He writes it um, uh, uh, on for his NIH director's blog. He writes a piece about this paper in Nature Medicine, no disclosure of the fact that he was thanked by the authors for his advice and leadership on it. And Anthony Fauci discussed it in a White House briefing where President Trump was asked about, like, how did this pandemic begin? Can I talk to, um, you know, Tony Fauci about it? Tony Fauci steps to the dace and says, oh, well, we have this paper by these, you know, international virologists. No mention at all of his, you know, work behind the scenes to help to orchestrate that paper. 
So that's how the loop was closed. That's how they closed the loop. It was a game of telephone. Um, and with the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you know, there were consequences for Judith Miller, you know, although they probably should have been a little more reached out a little wider than just Judith Miller herself, but there have been no consequences for these people, you know, and this is the third of two scientific publications that were orchestrated behind the scenes to put down the idea that this virus could have started in Wuhan. Now, do we have proof that the virus came out of the lab in Wuhan? No, we don't. And I've described this much as me going to a friend of mine and telling her like, you know, hey, you know, Mary, do I have proof that your husband's cheating on you? No, I don't have proof of that. But let me tell you what I do have proof of. I know that when he said he was going camping with Jacob last week, uh, last month, he didn't go camping with Jacob. And remember when he said he hasn't talked to Cheryl, his ex-girlfriend in like several years? Well, he was texting her yesterday. Do I have pictures of them in bed together? No, but do I think he's cheating on you? Yes. So like, that's the kind of proof we have. The proof is the fact that these people keep lying to keep hiding things. That's our proof. Cause you don't tend to lie and hide unless there's something that, unless there's actually something that's hidden. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my experience as a, as a human on this planet. <laughs> Much more after a short break. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a master class in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of gold and pink, or green and pink, and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. Okay, a few additional comments on some of the things that Thacker talked about. Those front page scoops that journalists like Judith Miller get, they're much touted in the media, but they're nothing more than propaganda handouts by newsmaker or propagandists who want these things reported in the news. They pick up and call a trusted journalist who they know will uncritically report or forward the narrative that they want. This is the MO I learned that many at top publications and networks use and are heralded for when they have these scoops and these anonymous sources they use who so often prove wrong, but time and again, they continue coming up with these types of stories and they're passed around by others in the media and they circulate globally as if they're big news. And no one is punished when it turns out they're wrong and the reporters live to see another day to come up with another scoop that also may be false. And I still don't understand why Colleagues in the media continue to go to those same sources and say, hey, look what the New York Times has now, or hey, see what the Washington Post reported, or NBC News. The same suspects who are getting it wrong and relying on bad sources and furthering narratives, we make it possible for them to keep operating in the same fashion. A second issue I wanted to comment on, the circular scheme where Fauci and Collins 
secretly had articles written or planted or helped with them that said what they wanted without disclosing their role in the articles. And then when the articles were published, they were basically their own work without their names on it. They circulated those articles among the media and referred to them and talked about them as if it was big news. You might call it a self-licking ice cream cone. I liken it to the FBI going to social media knowing the Hunter Biden laptop story was coming out ahead of the last election. And remember, they already had the laptop. But telling the social media executives, hey, this Russian disinformation is going to come out. And then when the perfectly accurate story comes out, it gets dismissed as Russian information. So much of the news and so much in medicine, quite frankly, is routinely manipulated this way. These people are setting up their own narratives and realities and using the news media to accomplish their propaganda purpose. Lastly, on ghostwriting, it so happens I'm writing about this very thing in my new book that will address medical and scientific fraud, among other things. This ghostwriting phenomenon is sadly common, as Thacker discussed. And to me, it's surprising it's legal, but I chalk that up to the fact that the people making the laws or deciding what's ethical are the ones who are benefiting from the practices that seem unethical or maybe seem like they ought to be illegal. Pharmaceutical companies hire doctors to put their names on articles that are already written for them and then get the articles published in medical journals, basically promoting a drug, but the drug company's name isn't on the article and their role isn't disclosed, meaning the doctors who read the articles and maybe patients who are reading the medical journals give it more credence as if it's independent when it's little more than paid advertising. All of this is discouraging, yes, but the more we know, the more we can resist the propaganda and in fact defeat it because when we become aware of what they're doing, it is ineffective. When we use the narratives that are so prevalent as instead a cue that alerts us to suspect that a fact or reality is being covered up, then we can look deeper and maybe get closer to the truth. I like to tell people that when you hear everyone on point reporting the same thing, using the same language and sources, it should cause you to wonder, who wants me to believe this and why? In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you'll share this podcast and leave a great review. And now you can support independent journalism, which has never been more important, by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking the Store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, with proceeds from sales benefiting various independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.